morning, y'all. It's good to see you. Pete, you still, Pete, you're still here, right? So, Pete, I was just wondering, is, is the reason that you love the Turkey Bowl so much um, that you're like back-to-back-to-back-to-back champions? Is that, <laughs> is that why? So I don't, I don't know if you all realize this, but is, is a staff like we exist to, to serve you, but you as a church also exist to serve us. And so one of the ways you serve us is by letting Pete throw the Turkey Bowl every year so he can hold that trophy. <laughs> Love you, man. Um, it's good to see you. We are, we're really grateful you're here. I'm grateful that we as a church can be a very eclectic people. Joel, would you stand? I'm just wondering. Did, so I just, I just think, you know, the, it just feels inappropriate to wear that in here. Yeah, uh, oh, no, let's see. We got, more, we got more Midwesterners. This is, oh. But, well, we really, we, yeah, we really need to pray now. We really need to. We really need to pray. All right, Father, God, we do. We they, I do thank you for for just this community of people, God. I thank you for for bringing people from lots of different backgrounds together as family because of Jesus. So as we come in to your Word, Father, I pray that you would generate in us just just a just a desire for it. You'd help our souls know how hungry they are apart from hearing from your truth. God, as we, as we gather, we, 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 we want to be challenged, we want to be stirred, we, we want to see change happen in our lives, that we might live more like Christ, that we might love you more, that we might be helpful to those around us. But God, what we need right now more than anything else is not to be entertained, it's not to be inspired. God, it's not even to be confronted. What we need most is that we might leave this place more impressed with Jesus Christ. Make him the hero today, Father. He is. Help us see him that way. All that he is and all that he's done and all that he promises to do. Holy Spirit, would you make him very loud in our conversations, in our songs, in our, in our prayers, and in the preaching of your word. And let that spill into the rest of this week until we gathered back together as your people to celebrate our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If, uh, let me try to give you an overview, a quick overview of, of what I'd say is the text, but also the structure of this sermon, and then we will stand together for the reading of, of God's Word. So the, the structure of this sermon, we're going to start with like a lot of hope, and then we're going to end with a lot of hope, and in the middle is, is just going to be confusion, okay? So, so I was thinking about, like, what kind of sandwich? It's, it's like a, it's like a, um, it's like a mamwich. You know, I don't know if you ever had mamwich, but just like you got the bread, the bread, and in the middle, you don't know what it is. And so, so the sermon's going to feel a little bit like hope, hope, and in the middle, just complexity and challenge and, and nuance and, and, and struggle. And so in light of that, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand. We're going to look at verses 17 through 21 of Daniel chapter 1, but let's start by reading the first six verses just to, to set the table a little bit. This is God's holy, helpful word. And the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They would be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Verse 17, as for these four use, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first, of, the first year of King Cyrus. Feel free to, to grab a seat. Give you the, the key to understanding uh, Daniel chapter 1 and really the entire book of Daniel. And I w- would suggest to you actually the key to all of life. Uh, we have kind of three signposts in, in chapter 1 that, that point to this, and it's this, God is in control. As you live in a complicated, confusing, disorienting, wonderful, challenging, fun, sad world, God is in control. These three signposts that we have in Daniel chapter 1, one of them comes in verse 2, and it actually It doesn't feel that encouraging. It's actually kind of a jarring verse, but it points to God's sovereign purposes. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The the ultimate reality of why God's people are in exile is King Nebuchadnezzar came in, this Babylonian world power, which is now modern-day Iraq, Shinar, the reference there would be like Baghdad, kind of locates it as this world power comes in. At the end of the day, this text is trying to say it's not about the kings and the politicians and the military forces. They're not the ones that are most in charge of this world. It is God. And the reason it's jarring is, is that God's people, their city had been besieged. They'd been carried off. But part of what we see with that, that verse is that God is in control and God is faithful to keep his promises. Part of that has a sharp edge, but there's also a kind edge to it. The sharp edge is this, that God for a thousand years had told his people, he said, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to love your neighbors. Here's what it looks like to flourish is, is, is people made in my image. Book after book, prophet after prophet was sent to try to call God's people back to that reality. And he said for a thousand years, if, if you don't do this, one day I'm, I'm going to raise up a, a foreign nation that's going to come and carry you off from your land. And God is keeping his promise here. The other side of that is that God also promised not that just exile would come, is that one day exile would end. And above all of it was God is in control. 
We see it down in verse 9, another signpost to that God is in control, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel and his friends had incredible favor and incredible uh, positions of power and prestige, and they never should have in this, this, this Babylonian nation. And, and the reason was not that they were just so amazing, not that they were just so disciplined and dutiful, and we'll see faithfulness throughout from, from Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, but it really comes down to what's said in verse 9, and God gave them favor and compassion. It's a heartening verse. God has personally invested in the lives of his people. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature. God supplies for Daniel what was needed for him to do what God was going to call him to do. It's the same thing for us. God supplies for us what's needed for us to do what God has called us to do. God's in control. Before we get to all the complexity and all the challenges of how do you live right in a wrong world and what is true and what's half true and how do I engage with it and where do I draw lines and how do I stand up and where do I speak and where am I quiet and what do I... Just, just God is in control. As you try to figure out how to live right, it's not the strength. I think one of the things that's really important to get is you read through Daniel because we could, we could turn it into a series that's like, be like Daniel. The point of Daniel isn't to be like Daniel, it's to get to know Daniel's God. It's not that Daniel was strong and Daniel was fierce and, and, and Daniel was courageous. All those things were responses to this, this, this truth that it's about God. It's not the strength of Daniel that kept him. It's actually the strength of God. When I think about that, it always reminds me of the story I read in a book called Gentle and Lowly, which is uh, just a phenomenal book um, that came out, I believe, about a year and a half ago. Uh, incredible book by a guy named Dave Orland. And in it, he, he recounts the story of teaching one of his kids. Um, to, they're going to go into an ocean. They're going to they're swim. And a little toddler. And, and, he, and he talks about it. You know, he reaches down. And any parent or auntie or uncle or big brother or sister that's, that's, that's taught their, their, uh, a toddler to walk has had this experience where, you, you know, you reach down and you let them grab your fingers and they kind of pull themselves up. And, 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 and for a while, they're this, this little kid. They just, they just grab those fingers so tightly. And in the story, it's like either they're walking down to the edge of the ocean as the, the gentle waves are kind of coming in. There's, you know, a little stumbling over the beach and, 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 and this, this little toddler just grips the fingers tighter. But after a few steps, I mean, what happens? A two-year-old just doesn't have the, doesn't have the, the endurance. And so their, their grip begins to loosen a little bit. But as it loosens, what this dad does is he, he, doesn't, he doesn't let go of his grip. He actually begins to grab tighter, and, and pretty soon, instead of this little kid holding on to, to, to their dad, it's the dad holding on to their child. It's a picture of God with us as we live in this world. It's, it's not about how tightly we cling to God. Oh, we want that. But throughout Daniel and throughout our lives, if we could really see it rightly, it's about how tightly God is clinging to us and his control and his sovereignty of his presence, of his provision. Now, God's in control, that sounds nice, um, but if we, we uh, unglamorize this text and we take it for what it is, that had to be pretty hard to believe while they were in Babylon. This global superpower had just abducted them, had wrecked their city, 
re-educating them, reprogramming. We didn't read verse 7. They renamed them after pagan gods. It's got to be like, if, if you're honest, you got to be like, if you're Daniel and his friends, you're going, God, what are you doing? How could you possibly allow this to happen? Relocated, renamed. And if we look at verse 2, if we go back to that, and the one who did this was God. He's the one sovereign over it. It's confusing. Some of us might feel that right now. We just look at the world and we look at the challenges and we, we don't know the answers and we're not sure we're, how to feel. And just go like, what's going on? God, I, I know you're in control. It just isn't, I don't get your plan. I was on a run up at, uh, up at Galbraith um, this past week. And uh, on, on, on my runs, typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll listen to like books on tape or I'll listen to podcasts. And where I've really been focused right now is trying to listen to like long form conversations around cultural hot button items. Um, so just topic after topic, really trying to dive in and learn and think and, and probably not the most relaxing way to spend a run because my, my, my head just spins. And I, I don't know what to do with all of these competing statements and, and all of these cultural pressure points. And, 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 and to be honest with you, on, on, on this run that I was on a few days ago, I just kind of got overwhelmed with, with how, like, it's even a fear of, like, anxious, like, just anxious. Just, what's going to happen? How's this going to work out? God, I don't know how to, I don't know what I'm supposed to know. I don't know what I'm supposed to think. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And at some point in the run, I just got overwhelmed with, with this, this, this feeling. And I stepped off the trail and I turned the podcast off and I just said out loud, I said, God, I just don't understand you. But I trust you. And it reframed everything. Like God is in control even when it doesn't look like it, and God has a plan even when we don't understand it. God had a plan in, for Daniel. He had a plan for his people. He had a plan of what he was doing. God has a plan in 2021. God knows what he's doing even if you don't understand it. I love the way Corey Ten Boom says it. She goes, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. At this point in Daniel, these are teenagers, and they're facing a life of incredible uncertainty and challenge. And the invitation to them is the same invitation to us. You don't need to have certainty. What you need is trust. You don't need to know how everything is going to play out this next week. We just need to know that God is sovereign over this next week. And you want to look at the most incredible example of God having a plan, even when it doesn't make sense to us, probably the best place to go is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of how God comes and ransoms people back to himself is not the story we would have written. That God would come and, and, and wrap himself in flesh as a baby and live a flawless, obedient, perfect life, and then he would go to a cross? It looks like failure. It looks like defeat. It looks like, it, it, it looks like evil won. But it's the place of victory. The gospel is this, this story of, of, of Christ Jesus disarming all the powers and principalities and authorities and sin and the evil one at the cross where Christ died. Looks so dark, but that's how the kingdom of God comes. In unexpected ways that we would not script. 
but are real. In the resurrection, that wasn't just the place of victory. That was like the encore performance celebration of the, the cross worked. I love Leslie Newbigin. He was asked this question. He was a missionary in India for 30, 40 years, and then he went back to England in, I think it was probably like the 50s, 60s. And when he, when he got back, he, he realized that England, over that span of time, had become a, a post-Christian nation. When he left, they, they seemed to be about Jesus. When he came back, it seemed like most people weren't about Jesus. And so he spent the rest of his career writing books about how to be a missionary to Western cultures and learning how to have a posture within those cultures. And, and he was asked this question towards the end of his, end of his life. They, 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 somebody asked him, like, when you think about the, the witness of the church in the West, are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Here's his response. I love this response. He says, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus is risen. I don't need to be pessimistic, and I don't need to be optimistic. I need to be realistic about the resurrection of Christ in the midst of a culture that doesn't know him. So God's in control even when it doesn't look like it. God has a plan even when we don't understand it. Okay, that's off the charts, Hope. Now let's take that in. Let's get some handles before we get back to Hope, some handles of how do, how do you live well in this culture. That's a lot of this study through Daniel. That's why the series is called Field Guide to kind of like, what are some, some, some things to identify? How do we navigate this, this well? One of the things is you got to know the culture. You got to know the culture. In verse 17, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful but kind of surprising verse. As for these four use, God gave them learning and skill. So God is intervening. He's helping them. But look what it says in all literature and skill. And if you go back to verse 4, here's what he gave them the ability to do, to know what the Babylonians know, to know the way they think, to know their worldviews, their ideologies, their convictions, their morality, their religion. That Daniel and his friends, they were very wise to the culture. They, they, they knew it so well, actually, as this text goes on, after these three years, what would happen is, is they get programmed and re-educated into a Babylonian, Babylonian worldview. They're going to be brought before the king to see, do they think like us enough? Do, are, can, they stand, can they be useful to this new kingdom that we've put them in? And what verse 20 says is that they were 10 times better than anyone else. People that grew up there, people that had been steeped in the culture, that they, they were 10 times more effective in actually knowing what the culture believed. It's really helpful for us to hear this, that God didn't intervene by removing them out of the culture, giving them power over the culture. He gave them the ability to know the culture, know the culture. David Hunter, in his book, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World, um, he identifies three cultural strategies that Christians have often used over the years to try to engage or disengage from culture. He said, he'll, I'll just give you some summary statements. And he would argue that all of these have some merit but are incomplete or flawed in some way. So here's one, one approach. Be defensive against culture and seek to dominate it. So one approach the church takes, and oftentimes when the church seems to have more of a position of, of power or cultural credibility, so we could think through uh, utilizing politics, utilizing forces of power within our culture to try to kind of force people into uh, a Christ-like way of being. So you're defensive against culture, you seek to dominate it. You seek purity from culture and withdraw from it entirely. So, so, you know, I kind of joked about, uh, if you're around last week, you know, like, do you, do you stay in Washington or do you move to Idaho? 
You know, that's a real conversation that people are having. Like, where do you go? Do you, do you say, like, I can't do this anymore. I've got to find a new place. And maybe the answer I said last week is yes, because it depends on your situation. But, but the reality is, is that Christians aren't called, no matter where you go, to remove yourselves completely from culture, as if you could. Or the third one, this, compromise with culture and be assimilated by it. Okay, we can try to have power, but they didn't have power. They could try to remove themselves from it, but they can't remove themselves from Babylon. Compromise with culture and just look like it. Well, we know from previous verses in Daniel that they had resolved themselves to not defile themselves. So they, there had to be another way. There had to be another way for Daniel and his friends to sit in the culture and live well to the glory of God. And I would suggest to you uh, Hunter's phrase. So David Hunter in his book, he offers this as an alternative. He says, Here's an, he invites you to, to a two-word thing he calls faithful presence. That the, the call that Christ puts on us in our culture is not one of of hostility and anger towards it. It's not one of of distance. And it's not one of conformity. It's one of faithful presence. Presence, you're there. They knew the teachings. They knew the ideas. They knew the worldview. Daniel, is is, he's going to be there for 70 years of serving these new kings and these new kingdoms and this new culture. They're present in the culture, but he was faithful. He was faithful. He, he, didn't, he didn't bend his knees when he shouldn't. He didn't cross the lines he shouldn't. The way you get this is, is really by holding these two things together. You got the world and you got the Bible. And really how we get to know what they know but know it better is by knowing the world through the lens of the Bible. It's where we get the subtitle of the series, We Want a Biblical Worldview So We Can Have a Beautiful Witness. And this leads into Why? Why would, why would we want this? As if it's inescapable. You are in the culture, so you got to know what to do with it. But why, why might we want to pursue this? Um, one of my favorite movies is a movie called 42. Um, it's a story of Jackie Robinson, just a phenomenal baseball player. And, and part of his legacy is that he broke through the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And about 20 minutes into the, the movie or so, there's this interaction where Jackie's at spring training, and he's kind of walking down this fence line, and there's like a press, there's like a press corps kind of over off to the side. There's a bunch of reporters and stuff. And as Jackie's walking forward, another reporter comes up to him who became a very good friend and kind of a kind of a guide and counselor to him. Came up and, and just began to ask, you know, hey Jackie, just so I can get like a headline, um, you know, how are you how are you enjoying spring training? And his response was like, good. He said, that's not going to be much of a headline. And then he asked him another question. Then he asked him this question. He says, hey, what are you going to do when a white pitcher throws at your head? And Jackie, he, uh, he just, he just kind of, uh, he didn't want to answer. And uh, the reporter says, hey, um, you know how when you're at the plate and you're getting, you're getting ready and, and, and the pitcher's winding up, you know how when you're at the plate, you want to you wanna see the pitch come in slow? It might be thrown at 97 miles an hour, but you need to be so ready that as it comes in, you actually see it come in slow. Poor goes, he says, hey, pretty soon, it's not going to be me asking that question. It's going to be the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, and uh, so then Jackie kind of leaves that conversation. He goes around the corner to these, these other reporters, and the very first question they ask him is the one that that reporter just asked. And you get this scene like they kind of both look at each other and they kind of smile and nod. 
He needed to see the pitch come in. So he needed to know what he was about to get confronted with. So he knew how to respond. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says it like this. He says, understanding the times is a precondition of responding appropriately to the times. You want to see the pitch coming in slow. You want to know what's coming down the cultural pipe. You want to try to anticipate it. And you want to know enough so that when it comes in, you know how to respond. I mean, think about all the things that, I, at least I'll speak for me, that I am scrambling to come up with answers to that I wasn't even thinking about seven years ago. The pitch ain't coming in slow. And, and an invitation of a text like this in the midst of hope, and we'll, we'll end with hope, but in this confusion of, of just complexity, you want to see the pitch coming slow. How? Well, you need to understand the times, but how? Uh, this will be a quick point, and I'll give you a little bit of the what. Um, how? It's going to take work. It's just, it's going to be like the most unpopular point, maybe, of this sermon. It's, good. it's just going to take work. How do you prepare yourselves to live well and to know the culture? It's just going to take work. It's going to take time. In this text, they spent three years, all day long, every day of the week for three years being trained in the worldview and the culture and the ideologies and the thinking of a Babylonian context. It's going to take time for us. You're going to have to carve out time in your lives to study and think and reflect and have conversations. It's going to take work. But what should you know? Like, what do you want to know? Um, I'll give you a general one, then I'm going to give you uh, maybe a little bit more of a specific appeal. Let me give you some stuff. As you're trying to know the culture, this is about they knew the culture. God gave them favor to knew the culture. What is something you want to know? Well, I would suggest to you, need, you, you need to know the culture's dominant worldview. We talked about worldviews a few weeks ago. Let me give you a quick refresher on it. James Anderson says it like this, worldviews play a central and defining role in our lives. They shape what we believe and what we're willing to believe, how we interpret our experiences, how we behave in response to those experiences, and how we relate to others. Our thoughts and our actions are conditioned by our worldviews. And everyone has a worldview. Everyone does, whether it's been defined, whether it's just been absorbed, whether it's been caught, whether it's been intentionally sought out. Six main questions for a worldview. We're not going to answer these. I'll just give you these. These are some of the big questions that all of us are asking and all cultures are answering in some way. What is real? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live and why? What happens in the future? Now, as you think about these questions, what, will, what are the answers? How is this answered in 2001 in Whatcom County? How is this, was this answered in 1952? How is this answered in 1723? How is it, I mean, like, what are the answers? How have those answers changed? How have they shifted? How they, and, and part of the invitation of a text like this in a, in a study like Daniel's, we want to be able to say, okay, these are good questions, significant, important questions. Where are we getting our answers? And are we sure that the answers that we're getting, the answers that our culture is offering us are going to provide the sort of human flourishing that it promises? 
That's this mess that we find ourselves in and trying to struggle and wrestle through it. Let me get, so that's the, the general. Um, let me give you one area that, that will tap into all these, but I, I would suggest to you is probably, uh, might be the most significant thing to really spend some time getting your head around both culturally and biblically at this cultural moment, because I think it impacts just about everything that, I, that it feels like are flashpoints for us as a, as a, as a culture right now. And I would, I, would, I would say it's anthropology or biblical anthropology or humankind, who are people? Are they designed in a certain way? Are they designed for a certain thing? Like, as I think about this, I mean, when you think about a a, a biblical anthropology or this beautiful phrase called the Imago Dei, that everyone that you meet is made in the image of God, that there is a a value to all human life, regardless of competencies or abilities, that that, that, this precious doctrine, do you know that in the kingdom of God, in the creation of God, the only thing that's ever declared to be made in God's image is you? And the person you're sitting next to? And the person that votes differently than you? I mean, it's stunning. It it will impact everything. It taps into ethnicity. It taps into immigration. It taps into homelessness, to caring for those that are impoverished. It taps into refugees. It taps into the unborn. It taps into gender. It taps into sexuality. Like, think of the things that we are fighting about as a culture. God speaks to us. And so my, my deep encouragement to you is to spend time looking at God's answers to this. We want to know what they know. We want to know what the world knows. But we also, we want to know it biblically. We want to see where, where, where there's agreement. We want to see where, where maybe it's incomplete. Maybe where it's just completely contrary to the word of God. We want to know the culture. But boy, there is a huge, huge problem. Huge problem is you soak in the culture, it is so difficult to not begin to think like the culture. Like, as you get exposed and you, and you, and there's a reason that Christians just say, like, I'm gonna hit the eject button, I just need to, get, I can't get, I can't do it. Because there's always this danger that as you're in the culture and you're learning to think the way the culture thinks, I and mean, there would have been for Daniel and his friends as they've been re educated, reprogrammed, and renamed to then become functionally Babylonians. There always is for us as we soak in the culture to begin to live and to think the way the culture does. But Daniel, I mean, the rest of the book of Daniel, they knew the culture, they knew the arguments, they knew the ideology, they knew it, but they didn't live by it. They did this really beautiful thing. They were culturally informed but unconformed simultaneously. They were culturally informed. They were culturally fluent, but they were conformed to Christ. And that's the invitation to us, that we would know the culture without being conformed to the culture, that we could do both. Um, This past week, I listened to an audio book of Tim Keller's um, How to Reach the West Again. Strongly, I just encourage you to, this is a, it would be a very timely thing as we're going through Daniel. It's free. You can download a PDF. And then there's also, I mean, a a free audio book where he reads the whole thing. It'd take you like an hour and four minutes or something to listen to. It's pretty, it's pretty dense. There's a lot of stuff in it, but it is really, really, really helpful. And there's a number of helpful things. We're actually going to put a link in the loop this coming week. So this weekly thing we see now just to keep you in the loop. So it'll be in there. So, so you can go find it. And I would just encourage you to listen 
listen to it. Um, but among many of the insights that, that Keller brought up, he talked about catechism. We talked about catechism a few weeks ago. Catechism is this process of transmitting faith, of teaching faith to people, to, to giving beliefs. And, and this happens within Christianity, but it also happens within culture. It sometimes takes the form of question and answer. So there's a question given and then an answer. And so we're catechizing. We're training people up in the faith. And so he talked about catechism, but specifically he talked about the need for counter-catechism. That you're being catechized all the time, and really all catechism is a counter-catechism, saying this is what culture says, here's what God says in light of what culture says. Um, he says it like this, he says, we need catechesis as well as counter-catechesis using biblical doctrine to both deconstruct the beliefs of culture and answer questions of the human heart that culture's narratives cannot. So we need both. And you hear, you hear the same thing. You know the culture, but you got to know the Bible. You got to know the culture through the Bible. Um, he goes on and, and gives this really, I thought was a really helpful insight. He says, catechism does at least these two things. It provides indoctrination and inoculation at the same time. So he, he highlights kind of the, the secular age and some of the catechisms that are happening. He says it like this. He says, so you're being indoctrinated, and so we need to counter indoctrination, but he says, here's, here's somehow how you're being indoctrinated. The secular age has a very definite catechism of its own. It comes to us now dozens of times a day, or even an hour, in ads, tweets, music, stories, opinion pieces, etc. They are narratives about identity. You have to be true to yourself. Freedom. You should be free to live as you choose as long as you don't hurt anyone. Happiness. You must do what makes you happy. You can't sacrifice that for anyone. And I imagine in this room, if we're, we're going, do I believe that? Do I, that feels right. Or I don't, I, that, that part feels like, because we, we're, we're, we're swimming in it all the time. Science. The only way to solve our problems is through objective science and facts. Morality. Everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong themselves. Justice. We are obligated to work for the freedom, rights, and good of everyone in the world. History. History is bending towards social progress and away from religion. Uh, just a smattering of ways that are called... What's, what's right? Are they all right? Is every part of every answer right? Is one right or mostly right? I mean, how do, how do, how do you juggle that? How do you, how do you walk in the nuance and challenge and difficulty of that? You know, here's the problem. Like, where do you get truth for that? President Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama um, said this in an interview in the Atlantic, talking about this, this, there's no common agreed upon truth in our culture and sees this as a real crisis he says it like this. He says, we do not have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false. You know, if we do not have that capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, then by definition, the marketplace of ideas doesn't work. And by definition, our democracy doesn't work. We are entering into an epistemological crisis. That's pretty insightful. See, and partly what we're all feeling is because we don't even have a standard of truth in which us to have a conversation as a people. But we do. And Daniel did. And so the idea is to take all of these statements and you put it through this lens of saying, okay, what does God say about that? The other thing it does, it's not just indoctrination, but 
but it's inoculation. You know, one of the questions you might ask as you look at Daniel and his friends is, how did these teenagers, how did they go into this culture and not be so swayed by it that they could remain faithful? And if you've read the book of Daniel, you see some stunning, incredible, brave, costly things that they were willing to do. How did they, they do that? Well, I would suggest you they were catechized. I don't know why my voice cracked there. I just get really excited about catechisms. I think they were catechized. I think that if you trace back their faith tradition, you would go back to a mom and a dad and a church that were following the strategy of Scripture, places like Deuteronomy 6. So if you grew up in a Jewish household, you would hear this thing called the Shema multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your strength. And these commandments that I give to you, they're to be upon your heart, and it goes on. It gives a Shema, but it also gives a strategy that these teenagers, they grew up in a place that was saying, this is the true God. This is who he is. And this is who you are before him. And, and these commandments that I'm giving, and, and the strategies, we're going to talk about them when we're at home, when we're on the road, when we lie down, when we get up. We're just going to get the things of God in the ordinary nooks and crannies of our lives. And I think that the way they were able to stand firm in their faith is that they were indoctrinated, which then did this. It inoculated them from the distortions of the culture that they were in. Let's talk about Vaccines. Never thought, like in my notes, it says, don't get mad, and kind of wink at everyone, don't get mad. Like, this, it's weird to talk about vaccines and have this be such a cultural flashpoint. I realize it is. So you, you put this on whatever history of whatever vaccination you need to. I just want to talk about how vaccines work. They help to develop immunity by introducing either a amount of a live virus or some version or, or engineered product of a virus, that, that what it does in your body is it introduces this thing, your body goes, that's not good for me, that's going to hurt me, and so your body begins to produce things like antibodies so that it readies itself so that if one day you ever face the real thing, your body is on guard and ready and prepared to fight it. You're inoculated, so you're more prepared to battle when this thing comes in to attack you. And you can trust that I got that right because I'm a pastor. So it's like as I'm preaching right now, I'm trying not to look at all the medical professionals that are just going like, bro, stop. Um, but that's how, that's how a vaccine works is it introduces something into you. It exposes you to something so that you are ready when the real thing comes. That's what good doctrine does. That's what counter-catechesis does. That's what the Word of God does. That's what studying the Mago Dei does is it, gets, is it allows you to be ready when you have false things come and alternate things come and distortions of God's Word come. It means that you're ready. It's like divine antibodies. Or the Jackie Robinson, you see the pitch come in slow. You know, you know what the culture believes, but you know it better because you know what God says about what we should believe. Started a book yesterday called You Are Not Your Own. Um, and it's built around the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so this little Q and A. So here's, here's the question from the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll put this up. We won't put up the answer. Um, but here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Does anybody know the answer if you do three cookies? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Anyone? Anyone, anyone know the Christ? Amen. Anyone know the catechism answer? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul. 
and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the answer goes on, and it's beautiful. Johannes, you get five cookies. Um, you could probably say it in German too, huh? So that's pretty awesome. Just think, think about that statement answer right now in the midst of this cultural moment. I cannot think of anything more culturally offensive than that answer. In a culture of expressive individualism, it says, I get to determine what's right. I get to determine what's morally upright and not. I get to pick and choose a whole variety of things. I get to be an autonomous, sovereign self. And in the midst of that culture, what we need is counter-catechesis. We need to sit and go, oh, we are not our own. And the book is, is so far has been beautiful in unpacking why you actually really don't want to be your own. You want to be under the sovereign good care of God. Michael Goheen says it like this, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? So we want to know the culture but we don't want to conform exactly to the culture. But let me bring in one more part of this that will really hit when we get to Daniel 4, but it's really important to not miss here. For the good of the culture. For the good of the culture. That's why God has you here. If you're a follower of Christ, that's why God keeps you here. You want to know the culture, but not be conformed to the culture for the good of the culture. So Daniel and his friends, they lived for the good of their culture. They, they, in Jeremiah 29, another book that talks about when God's people are in, in exile, says, when you go to, to this new city, I want you to pray for its welfare. I want, you to, I want you to build lives there. I want you to pray for the welfare. I want it to go well. I want you to live well in that place for the good of that place. Something that could go really sideways, and, and I've said it so many times, it's like, know what they know. It's kind of this us and them sort of language, but that's not what God called his people to. He actually says it's us for them. We want to know what they know, not as a weapon to use against them, but as a bridge to invite them to know the true God who loves them. And if you go back to the Jackie Robinson story, the reason he wants to see the pitch come in slowly, the reason he wants to get... Where, 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 where stuff might blindside or hit him is that he, he had to live with courage and character and conviction to do something beautiful. It's the same thing for us. Daniel doesn't read as an us against them. It reads as an us for them. And that's the invitation of the church always. This is how, what Jesus said. So when Jesus instructs, this is what he declares about you. We'll put this scripture up on the screen. This is, this is what Christ calls you if you're a follower of Christ. You are the salt of the earth. It doesn't say go be salty. As Christians, the way we talk, the way we, we influence, the way we, we flavor our culture, the way we preserve our, our culture, the way we, we help it not deteriorate, the idea is you are the salt of the earth. You're present in it. But it goes on, but if salt has lost its taste, we don't conform to the culture because then we lose our distinctive ability to influence well in the culture. If it loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. It's what you are. We know the culture. We don't conform to the culture, but we do it for the good of the culture. You, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it might give light to all that are in the house. The idea is to not withdraw from the culture, but to stay distinct from the culture while you live in the culture for the good of the culture so they might know the God that you know. And the Savior that has found you. And the sovereign goodness of a father that's looking down at a world confused and angry and scared and anxious and said, there's a better way. Hope, just the challenge of the cultural moment to live Christianly in a, in a world that doesn't love Christ, to live right in the wrong world, to, to, to have all these swirling, competing claims of truth and hope. Verse 21 is maybe a peculiar verse for hope, but it is loaded with it. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If you look at Daniel chapter 1, there's two timestamps. There's uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus. So 605 BC and then 70 plus years later, Cyrus. And what it's saying is that, what that verse is saying is that God was with Daniel for 70 plus years. God was with him. God was faithful. And as you read Daniel, that's what you're going to see. What started with Nebuchadnezzar and God's faithfulness brought Daniel all the way to Cyrus. But it's not just God is faithful to Daniel. God was faithful to bring about his promises through Cyrus. See, God had predicted hundreds of years prior to this that he was going to raise up someone named Cyrus. He's going to raise up a king that would, be, that would come to power and deliver his people back to Jerusalem. We see it in places like Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God declared it hundreds of years before. And as you sit in exile, as Daniel's friends sat in exile, they knew that promise of God. And so they lived in the moment with hope, awaiting the point at which God was going to bring it about. And here at the end of Daniel, we have this little nod that he does. It's the same thing for us. As we look at trends and statistics of the decline of Christianity in the West, as you feel more and more marginalized, as we face the challenges of an increasingly secularized culture, God is still in control. God still has a plan. He's declared it. He's declared his promises. I'll end with this. Um, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by um, John Amucheka. Um, God's people are awaiting people. Really beautiful sermon. Um, and he was walking through Hebrews chapter uh, 11. But he ended with this sermon illustration um, that just captures this idea of, of being a hope-filled, waiting people and the promises of God. And uh, in it, he was, he was referencing back to April um, when the NCAA men's basketball tournament, uh, the finals were happening. Um, he's an alumni from Baylor, and he uh, lives in Atlanta. He's part of this group chat with a number of buddies that were all watching the game. They were all alum from Baylor. This might be kind of a painful illustration because they were playing Gonzaga um, in, the, in the finals. And it's getting towards the end of the game, and John's, you know, he's streaming it on, on a screen, and he's texting with his buddies, and then all of a sudden, like, the coach for Baylor decides to pull out at a really key, pivotal moment in the game, pulls out their best player. And John's sitting there, and he's just getting frustrated. He's just frustrated. He's like, what is, what is he doing? This is not going to work well. This is not the time to, to pull this guy out. So he's texting in this group chat. He says, I can't believe he just did that. Why would they pull this player out? And one of his buddies texts him back. He says, what are you talking about? He's in right now. 
And what John realized is that he had a leg in his streaming. There's a leg in the, the video and the audio, and it actually began to get a little bit worse. And so he's watching this, and, and he would hear the announcer say something like, and, and, and the shot went in. But he's looking at the screen, and it's just a guy dribbling up the court. There's a leg between what the announcer is declaring has happened and what he has seen actually occur. He said he ended up not fixing it. He didn't fix the lag. He didn't adjust anything. He didn't want to miss the end of the game. And he said it for this reason. He says, because I trust the announcer's voice. I knew that the announcer wasn't going to lie. I knew what the announcer was saying would actually come true. So he began to just sit there and listen to the voice, even though what he saw in front of him was different than what he heard. And the way he plays this is the same for us as Christians. You have the voice. You have the announcement. You have the promises. You're just living in the lag. God has told us how this works out. Daniel 121, Cyrus comes and the exile ends. One day Christ returns and the exile ends. We're just living in the lag. Jesus said this. Trust the announcer's voice. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Tim Keller's commentary on that, there's no reason to believe that promise has an expiration date. We live well in the culture now by trusting that Christ wins as we live in the lag. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask for the grace. Just like you did for Daniel, where you gave wisdom and skill. God, we want to know our world. We want to know what people believe around us because we, we love them. We care for them. And there's common grace and there's shared things for sure. But God, we also need biblical wisdom and insight and biblical community to be able to see where it's off that we, we're not conformed to the world. We want to be in this world, but we don't want to be like this world but we're for sure not against this world. We want to be for this world. And the best way that we can be for this world is to be unconformed to this world. But rather conformed to the image and the pattern of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for the, the, the reality that you are in control, whatever it looks like, that you have a plan, even if we don't understand it, and that Christ, you win. And we get to live our lives between the, the, those bulwarks of, of hope-inducing faith. Grant us the grace to trust and know that Christ wins. It's what we need most. In Jesus' name, amen.